0: Not the same number. All right. Uh, a, one one of the stories that I have been asked to tell, and this will this will tell you a lot about me, and also how small a town and community that we are a part of. Um, I grew up at West End. My parents were married at the Old Otter Creek building. So those are those are sort of my connections to here. here. Um, When I met Nancy's parents, her dad was a preacher in Cookville, and he knew my preacher at West End, Jim Bill McIntyre. and somehow that night we got to talking about stories of kids getting into trouble at church, and he said, your preacher had the best story about a kid getting into trouble at church. So if you've, been in, if you've been in West End, you know it's got kind of that rifle barrel design, and if you are walking out the front of the auditorium, you have to walk past the stage where the preacher is to get out the door. So I had been acting up one Sunday and disrupting everything, and my mom took me up to take me out to one of the big trees out there that I think is now gone to spank me. And I knew what was coming. I got even with Jim Bill. Oh, I'm sorry. I spoiled the story. Kid gets even with Jim Bill, says, I'm not going to like this. Mom whisks him out, brings him back in. Got to walk by Jim Bill again. Kid looks up and says, I Told you I wasn't going to like this. Tom whisks him right back around. Another spanking, brings him back in. And I said, yeah, and you're sitting next to him. <laughs> what my future father-in-law did not know is that this whole encounter so flustered my mother that she went and sat down by somebody who was not my dad.
1: <laughs>
0: if you know my dad, my dad was 6 foot 8 and weighed 167 pounds. There was another man at West End that was 6 8 and weighed 167 pounds. That's the one she sat next to. So, that's how small this town, yes. <laughs> um, I Paulette didn't give me a whole lot of uh, framework about what kinds of stories people have been telling to you, what kinds of stories that you would like to hear from me. Um, I am self-absorbed enough that I can talk for a couple of hours pretty easily about myself, and I got about 30 minutes here, so I... I don't really know which stories you want to tell. Don't really know which stories I'm gonna wind up telling. Um, so I, I thought I would start by telling you a little <laughs> bit about how I think about myself. And if if you have any questions, is q and A Q&A part of this? Do y'all? Okay. So feel free to do that at any point because you will not be interrupting anything that I have planned. Because in about two minutes. I'm going to be doing this completely improv. So, um, one of the ways that I think about myself, this is one of the defining characteristics of my personality, is I tend to define myself against whatever group I find myself a part of. So, that means, for instance, that I will very often be the most conservative person in a room full of liberals, the most liberal person in a room full of conservatives. If I'm in a group where everybody is interested in the Enneagram, I'm the Myers-Briggs guy. (laughs) Um, If everybody is reading a particular book, I will go find some other book to read. I will look for classes here um, where nobody is going because I want to see what they're doing instead of what everybody else is doing. If I'm sitting in an auditorium by myself, I am very often found off in the corner um, where there's nobody for three rows. That's just, that's kind of how I I built my career uh, as a writer, basically writing about the things that nobody else wanted to write about, uh, which I found left me a lot of, places that I could go and interesting stories that I could tell that would be all my own and I wouldn't have a lot of other people trying to do the same things. And I, I, I did a very nice career. That started with country music, because you know, I would, if I, I was gonna write about music, everybody else that I knew was writing about rock and pop and stuff, and I was like, well, I'll just go write about country, because that's where I am and that's what's going on, and I'll have a different perspective on that than everybody else. And that just kind of built into uh, other things, and so I've just kind of always gravitated toward um, things that I am not a part of, or things that are at the edges of whatever group I'm a part of. Um, related to that, uh, I am my, my curiosity is very easily piqued, um, and i, I uh, for example. Somebody asked uh, in a mixer once, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? And by the time it got around to me, I realized that my favorite ice cream flavor is the one that I haven't tried yet. That I will always, if you give me five ice cream flavors that I love and one that I don't even know what it is, I will get that one every time. Every time. So, like I said, curiosity is very easily piqued. I am fascinated by um, stories and cultures that feel completely alien to me. Um, so, for example, I love I love monster stories, and I think this I, I think this started when I read um, I'm blanking on the author's name The Cross and the Switchblade. Y'all remember The Cross and the Switchblade? I read that as a kid, and that was really my first introduction to the idea of teenage games. And growing up, white kids south of Woodmont, in Nashville, I didn't understand the appeal or the lifestyle of that at all. And I found those books fascinating. And I read every... His name was David something. Who remember? Um,
1: Wilkinson.
0: Wilkinson, yes. David. And so I read everything that I could get my hands on by David Wilkinson because I just... Didn't understand that at all, and really wanted to. Um, I love stories about circuses and carnivals because that's a whole subculture all to itself that I have never been a part of. Completely find it fascinating. Um, musicians, kind of the same way. I'm not a musician, um, even though I trained. Uh, I trained in music. I was always a better fan than I was a musician um and so i am I'm, I'm fascinated by musicians because they are just enough different from me that i don't really understand them, and I would love to um one of the let's see one of the the other defining traits is i I have spent almost my entire professional career working out of my house um really had not spent substantial time in an office uh until about seven years ago i i I spent 18 years working for usa today out of my house and after that i went to work for a public relations firm and had to go into an office there and that was (coughs) the first time that i had spent it's the first time i'd had a real job honestly (laughs) Um, and but it was the first time that i had spent (coughs) substantial time not working from the house And one of the things that I realized halfway into that career was that I come from a family where every guy in my direct lineage, as far back as I can trace, has either run his own small business or worked out of his house (coughs) for generations. Because my, my my father was a real estate agent and later a house inspector. Spent most of his time working out of the house. He had an office. Uh, His father did a small, uh, ran a small construction business in Glasgow, Kentucky, out of his house, and I don't remember what his dad did, but pretty soon after that, you're back in farmland, and so I I tell people, I was born and bred for the pandemic. Because absolutely nothing changed about my life. Because I was just I was already at home. I had everything there. I never <laughs> went outside anyway. Um, and, I, and and re- related to all of those things, I I also tend to think of myself. And I was joking with you. I was joking with you earlier. That because um, I, I wake up very when I wake up, I wake up very quickly. And I'm I'm like this, where I'm just like practically vibrating already. Uh, within two minutes after I wake up, my wife is not like that. Um, and she said, that make me want to shoot you. I said I have that effect on a lot of people. Uh, um, Betsy Piper can tell you the effect that I had on classes. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> I have a story. <laughs> yeah. um, and 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 so I have, I, I have gotten on enough people's nerves over the years that. I assume naturally that I am, whenever I bring myself into a situation, that I am being intrusive. Part of that is because of the job that I have as a reporter, I have had to make the phone calls to say, I'm so sorry for your loss, tell me how you're feeling. I've had to be on what I called ghoul patrol, where people that I knew or or even worse, strangers that had just lost somebody close to them, I had to go call them because I was writing the story, uh, I was writing the the obituary of their father or their friend or their colleague. Um, You know, reporters have a tendency to kind of parachute into people's lives and then come right back out. I've done enough of that that I kind of assume... That I'm like that with everybody, and so if if, if there is if there is somebody, that, especially if somebody is grieving, if there's somebody that's grieving, and I am not already close to them, it is very difficult for me to go up and say something because I just naturally feel like I'm in the way. Just kind of how I think about myself. Um, well, oh, Betsy, you said you had a story. I want to hear the story. No. <laughs> <laughs> no it's not my day. Not my day. <laughs> um, hey, going back to the small town bit, I just learned this, and haven't seen you since I learned this, um, that Betsy was my eighth grade English teacher. and She was uh, a
1: very good writer even then. <laughs> uh,
0: but who was, who was writing who was interested in writing things that would probably have gotten me reported today. Um, I mean, I, I distinctly remember some of the things that I wrote in her class. Um, and... Um, because I was, I, was, I was interested in horror fiction at the time, and so I'm trying to write Stephen King stuff in her class, which has to be completely just got to completely freak out a middle school English teacher. Um, But anyway, I just found out that she lives in the house where a songwriter named Bobby Braddock used to live. And um, so she lives in the house where um, the song D-I-V-O-R-C-E was written. Maybe she's told you this, I don't know. Um, But what I found fascinating was I posted about this because I have a Facebook page called the Nashville Musical History Tour, where I write about the locations where the stories that we've all kind of heard being in Nashville happened, where people lived, where people got arrested, where people got married, where people got shot, whatever. I like, go, here's the house where that happened. And um, I took a picture of her house, no clue it was her house, um, and posted the story about Bobby Braddock and divorce, and I said, I have at least one Facebook friend who can tell you specifically what happened in here. She thought I was talking about her. <laughs> She's gone for years thinking that I knew that she lived in Bobby Braddock's house. I just saw the post
1: for the first time. He posted <laughs> it two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. And he says, right behind that red car, which is our red car, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, uh, right behind that red car, this song was written and... And, and I had missed the post two years ago. I had incorrectly typed in my address because my neighbor's selling her house, and I wanted to see what our house was worth. <laughs> 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 her story is what came up. And I was and Brenda Hare had commented on it and other people that I knew. Um, and I was like, you know this is my house, right? I've lived here for so many years, and um, uh, we can do this was posted yeah. in the windows. Yeah. Kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. and. Uh, my grandson and I had made that, and um, um, and so I wrote on it two years late, just in the <laughs> last couple weeks. This is my house. I've lived here forever. Um, we we were told when we bought the house that the song was written there, but it made no sense to us. And then someone gave us Bobby Braddock's book, and there was a page about it. Um, and so when I said, "Well, then, who is your Facebook friend who would know who this is?" and he said. I'll be proud of you.
0: So, I mean, and and that's one of the things that I love. I love, I love those weird little connections. I am, um, I'm, I'm very fascinated by what might be called random events or chance. I remember I grew up reading. Francis Schaeffer. There was a, we had a series on Francis Schaeffer uh, when I was at West End when I was in high school, and so I was reading his stuff. Um, and it, one of the things that I that I learned that I really enjoyed doing is reading people at polar opposites at the same time. So in college, I would read Francis Schaeffer and I would read Abby Hoffman. I would read C.S. Lewis and I would read a book by Amiri Barakos known as Leroy Jones, was a black activist in the 60s and 70s. Um, And just to get those very disparate notions coming in at the same time, I loved that. Um, But one of the things that I remember Francis Schaeffer talking about he was he was not a fan of the notion of, of chance. And, and he, the person <laughs> that he talked about um, in much less than glowing terms was a composer named John Cage, who uh, his most famous piece is uh, a piece that's like four minutes and I think it's 11, 13 seconds, of silence and that's that's it so you could go on Spotify you could call up that and you get four minutes and 13 seconds or whatever it is that's what it's called it's called the length of time um, of silence and he would he would do things uh, where random events and random noises would happen and um, and that was those were his pieces he would write note he would notate uh, music uh, so that you followed a series of instructions to make noise, and it was never the same way twice. And and Francis Schaeffer just hated that. And um, I went to college in Boston, uh, Berklee College of Music, and at a uh, nearby conservatory, uh, John Cage came and spoke and gave a performance. And so as somebody that, Likes to make those big swings. I was like, well, I gotta go see John Cage. If Francis Schaefer hates him that much, I gotta go see what this is about. <laughs> and, um, and, and I got the last ticket, and afterwards I um, worked up the nervousness, just about as nervous as I've ever been in my life. I can think of two other times when I was maybe more nervous, um, neither of which was my wedding. <laughs> uh, and so I walked up to John Cage, not really not knowing much more about him than what Francis Schaeffer had told me, and I asked for him to autograph my program. And he said, "Do you want a single or a double?" And I'm like 18 years old, and he's one of the legendary composers of the 20th century, and I have no idea what he's talking about. So I'm like, "What's the difference?" <laughs> He's like, well, the double is kind of like a picture. I said, I'll take the double. So he takes it. I can't remember if he took a pen and he signed it, and he signed his name, and then he signed it over his name, or if he actually took two pens out and signed it at the same time. But whatever it is, I have a pro- Frank program at my house, John Cage, with two signatures right on top of each other, and that was his double. <laughs> I love weird stories like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the most nervous I have ever been in my life was um, I went I drove down to Nesbit, Mississippi to interview Jerry Lee Lewis. This is about 20 years ago, and Jerry Lee was famous among interviewers because there were questions that you could ask Jerry Lee that would get you shot, mm-hmm. and then there were questions that you could ask Jerry Lee that would get you shot but you didn't know what they were. <laughs> and so and also I'd grown up as a piano player. And so Jerry Lee was one of my musical heroes. Not life role models, but musical heroes. If if I could if I could play anything, I would love to be able to play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. So so I've got the the sort of hero worship going on. The fear that I'm going to get shot, and I'm driving down to Nesbitt, Mississippi, and that was as nervous as I've ever been going into this situation. (laughs) Um, He was much quieter and smaller than I anticipated, and I think he was was just as leery of me as I was of him. I'm sure he wasn't scared of me because he knew he could shoot me. Um, But, so it was... I think if we had had a second interview the next day, we would have actually had a really good conversation. But I was scared to death. Um, so that's that's kind of how how I how I look at my life. Um, does any if if anybody's got any questions, I would be happy to uh, to to go off in that direction for a while. Otherwise, I can probably run through kind of the outline of my life and career. Could
1: you, Got any
0: Bonnaroo stories? <laughs> um let's see. I, I, I went to the first Bonnaroo, um, I, I have gone all but all but two years. Um, and 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 I find that real, I find Bonnaroo really fascinating because I'm a music guy. And well that's I, planning a group trip, I think, to the Bonnaroo. We actually, okay, right. So when Doc Sanders was here, um, Doug tried to figure out a way for Otter Creek to provide childcare on site at <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> That where where we would have we would have had like a, a, a tent or a play area or something like that. And I mean, he actually had meetings with had a meeting with the organizers to see if there was a way for us to do that um, because a lot of it's a, a lot of families come down. For that, and so there are there aren't a lot of kids for crowds of sixty to eighty thousand, but but there are some, um, and those days are long and hot, and so so we we actually tried to figure out a way, and they're just with the the insurance issues and the notions of leaving a kid and parents going off, it just it ended up being too much, but but I loved that Doug Sanders tried to figure out a way for us to be involved there. Um, but I even, I even went to Bonnaroo one of the years uh, that they had, to ca- the, the pandemic year where they had to cancel uh, because Nancy and I were going around uh, just doing a drive someday, and, and we drove past the exit, and I was like, you know, I know some back ways into the Bonnaroo grounds. Let's see if they're open. <laughs> um, and they were. Uh, Because the back ways into Bonnaroo the rest of the year are just kind of dirt paths. And so we got to drive around. She's never been to Bonnaroo. And so we got to drive around, and we got to get up on the big stage, and I showed her everything. It was just completely empty Bonnaroo. (laughs) I'm used to seeing it with 80,000 people, and there's nothing there. And it was really, really um, a lot of fun, <laughs> um, but yeah. So I, I have I have been to that, and it's it, it, what it it took me a while to learn because, like I said, I'm a collector of stories, and um, I I have a tendency to have a a deeper commitment to the story than I do to relationships, and so. When I go to something like that, I'm going for the music and the stories and all that. And I learned that most people that go to those, the music is a great thing and they enjoy that. But really, they're going to feel part of that group. And and that was something that it took me a long time to learn that. Because as I've told you, I tend to define myself against the group. And so I can be in a crowd of 80,000 people, but it's much easier for me to be in a crowd of 80,000 people if I'm the one person reporting on it. So I'm in the crowd, but not of the crowd. The the in the world, but not of the world, that's a passage that I took to heart (laughs) as a kid. And that's the way that it is kind of, one of the ways that that has played out in my life. Um, Another interesting... I'm not sure that very many of you have been to our house. Um, you, you, so some families have uh, generational addictions or addictive behavior in their family. Maybe It, it may be alcoholism or something like that. In my family, it's hoarding. <laughs> <laughs> and you laugh, but I'm not kidding. Uh, when my grandmother died, we actually pitched... American pickers and hoarders on her story. And it took four auctions and I think a garage sale to get rid of all of her stuff. Uh, My grandmother had a baby grand piano in a one car, in a single car garage in her house. And you could spend all day in that garage and never realized there was a piano in the (laughs) and That was the single car garage. She also had a freestanding two-story, three-car garage. They only had one car in it, and it was full of teddy bears because that's where she stuffed all of the the teddy bears, stuffed it into my dad's truck there. and so that was, that was kind of my, my grandmother's house. Um, I met a fourth cousin four times removed once and went into her house and was like, I felt so comfortable. So I was like, oh my goodness, this feels like my grandmother's house if she had money. <laughs> I mean, and this, is, this, was, this, this distant cousin was a woman who had an entire house to put the stuff that didn't fit into her big house. Okay. Um, and so I was like or all of the people on that side of the family this way because our common ancestor was like 300 years before she's like yeah we pretty much all are. And um, and I remember my grandmother loved to go to garage sales. And that was one of the things that we did when we were when I was a kid. She would come down, she would take us and we would go to garage sales and just load up and um, my father what one of the things that we did at her funeral this is the kind of people we are um, we said let's take some of the stuff from her house and put it on a table in the back of the funeral parlor and as everybody (coughs) leaves tell them to take something (laughs) in memory of her and that way it's one more thing we don't have to get rid of in the house all right, so that's what. We, but my father, yeah. um, my father, got up talked about her going to, and he said, she didn't so much buy the items as she bought the stories that were attached to them, and that she would go and she would see um, a widow selling off a record player and the albums, and she would get to talking with the woman, and the woman would tell her um, how she and her husband, when they first got married, would listen to these records. You know, they'd put the records on the record player, and they would dance around the living room. And so she would buy the record player and all of the records and take them and put them on a shelf. Um, And then when I came up, she would say, look through the records and take all the records that you want. And she would never never plug in the record player, never play the records, but every time she saw those records and that record player, she would remember the love story of this young couple dancing around the living room. And what was weird, again, it took me a minute to realize this, I went on a huge collecting jag after my grandmother died. And it took me a while to realize that one of the ways that I was grieving was by incorporating that idea of buying stories into <coughs> my life. And and then the same thing happened when my father died uh, back in 2018, because uh, the family business is kind of land and real estate. He was a home inspector, I told you that. Um, and so when he died, I started, that's when I really started writing about the, um, sort of the geographical biographies, I call them, you know, where people lived and what happened in this place, and, and, and I start, I started writing about real estate after my father, who was a real estate agent and an inspector, and who worked with, um, Like when Jimmy Buffett used to have a house in Franklin, he inspected that house when Jimmy Buffett bought it. He inspected it when Jimmy Buffett sold it to Kim Carnes. Um, And so that was kind of the way that I ended up grieving my father was to write all of these stories about property and land. and, And I wish I could go in and ask him about more of the houses that he, you know, that, that he inspected for people because I know he's got a lot of addresses that I would love to have so I can go and tell those stories. Um, so that's, that's kind of, I, I have learned that that's one of the ways that I grieve is it kind of, kind of burrows into my collecting and my storytelling. Um,
1: yes? Can you give us a short bow of your sure.
0: Um, I'm a local, um, have lived other than going to college in Boston, lived for a year in St. Louis. Um, Other than that, I've pretty much lived south of Woodmont my entire life. Um, Went to David Lipscomb, first through 12th grade, um, decided that that was enough Church of Christ schooling for me, Um, went off to Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, which... I never visited before I went there. Um, I read about it in the back of a magazine, magazine that I still have, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and read about it, and it was it was a musician talking about all these great musicians and what a great music program they had. I was like, that's where I'm going. And so, about two weeks after um, high school graduation, I. Put, Trunk in a bus and took a Greyhound up to Boston by myself. Never been, never been to Boston, never been to the school before. Um, I began writing fairly quickly after um, <coughs> graduating from college and returning to Nashville. Um, I've written for most of the local publications in town. I worked for the Nashville scene. I was a music reporter for the Tennessean for a while. I spent 18 years as one of the music reporters for USA Today. Um, I've done various things since then, but that's pretty much always all been around writing. Um, I spent four years on the board of directors for the Country Music Association. I'm currently president of Historic Nashville, which is a preservation uh, group in town, uh, they do the annual Nashville 9, the list of uh, endangered properties because they may be developed or they may be neglected or they may get torn down. That's, I've been a part of that organization for about four years. That's, that's something that came about because of all of these land stories that I'm telling after my father's passing. So I kind of got worked into there and um, I'm currently president of that organization. Um, I've got, uh, my wife and I got married on April 15th, 1989. We met at the old Ashwood building. And uh, we have four kids, uh, Nick, Zach, Graceland, and Annalise. Uh, They are very, very evenly spaced, completely accidentally. They are 31, 29. The boys are 31, 29. The girls are 21 and 19. Uh, Graceland is attending college at Virginia Tech. And Annalise is attending college at Pepperdine, and the two boys live in, still live in the area. Um, and so that's, 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 oh, we've been in Otter Creek, what, 16, 17 years? Like that. Something Something like We We came here about a year after um, <coughs> the church moved into this building. <coughs> so before that, we had attended. Woodmont Hills and all of its various locations as they kind of wandered the city for a few years. And you have a granddaughter. And and I have a granddaughter. Three-year-old granddaughter named Jane Clear. Did the
1: music bring you here, or who or what brought you to Otter Creek?
0: Huh. (laughs) Okay. Um, That's a longer story than you had any idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh dear, and I've got to go be greeter in three (laughs) (laughs) minutes. Okay, good, good. So I know I have a time limit. Okay, so, um, there were some issues with, um, with Zach. Zach has some significant emotional issues. Um, Zach got kicked out of Otter Creek Kindergarten, um, which, fair play to them. That was, um, but so, um, Some stuff happened at Woodmont Hills, and we realized that the last group of people that we trusted to share our problems that we were going through with Zach um, were the elders there. And so we knew we had to leave. Um, Zach at that point was um, going, he was attending church with my parents. He was attending West End with my parents. Um, and and the the folks at West End just were lifesavers for him really took him under their wing Um, but we needed a place that we could drop him off and attend church and so that pretty much narrowed us down to Granny White Brentwood Hills Brentwood or Otter Creek and Nick because we were uprooting Nick from his youth group, we gave Nick the largest vote. And Nick really bonded with David Rubio. Mm-hmm. And so we are. We came here because of David Rubio and the youth group. So.
1: And that's the story of many families.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it very, very much is. Um, but the... The, 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 struggle, the struggle with Zach was really, really significant um, to the point that um, one, of, one of our goals for, getting, for, for raising Zach was to get him to adulthood without being in jail. And if he was in jail that it was, for something, it was for something that didn't involve hurting somebody else. Um, and um, so when I talk about how I tend to go off and find odd little corners, um, when, I hear shoot, when I hear school shooting stories, my thoughts tend to go very quickly to what I consider the most marginalized community in those stories, which is the parents of the shooter? Um, you know, it's it's Ron and Norma Hale. And I don't know if any of y'all know the Hales. I don't know the Hales, but um, but I know people who do. And I cannot imagine what what they have to be going through now but more, but but in addition to what they're going through now uh, every, every a lot of what i have seen that they've said or has been said about them uh, suggests to me that they spent a lot of their lives trying to make sure that what their child did did not happen and our our issues with Zach were serious enough that that was our biggest fear was that something that he would unintentionally in his case would do something that couldn't be taken back and that was that was the story the the overarching narrative of our lives for many years was just trying to make sure that we raised him in a way that that wouldn't happen. And so I, I that's, I mean, my, my heart goes out to, a, to everybody in that, but I also know that most people aren't going there. And so uh, if y'all were in first service when Blake Farmer got up and he talked about that, that was as, as proud as I have ever been of anything that was said on that stage in the 16 or 17 years that we've been here because that takes a lot of nerve mm-hmm. to get up in public and talk about sympathy for people that everybody in this town hates right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's why I said Betsy Sorry the national.
1: So how is your son doing? Um so he's in his thirties
0: he's he's 29. Um, he's the one with the granddaughter. Um, the granddaughter is like, the most easygoing <laughs> kid you have ever met, which is a godsend, because he was one of the most difficult. I mean, he he at one point um, was was officially the worst kid in the metro school system. <laughs> it was the, he was the worst kindergartner in the metro school system because he was the only he went through four kindergartens, starting with Otter Creek. Um, wound up in the most restrictive setting. Uh, he was the only kindergartner. There were no first graders at the school. Um, he basically wrote his own curriculum as a kindergartner. Um, uh, it's always it's 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 always it's it's going to be a long life for him. Um, he's. I I, I don't want to go too much into his story. Um, he's. It could be worse. It could be better. Um, he's he's working on it. So, uh, inherited your uh, dad's purple tools. <laughs> That's great. So my dad, um, the way he figured it out to keep people from stealing his tools in the seventies, he painted them all lavender.
1: <laughs>
0: because he figured that no self-respecting construction worker would steal lavender tools. <laughs> I, think if, I, I think my mom sold most of those. We probably have some of I think we have just enough that um, the things that we need are still there. And, and for all of the kids and the grandkids to have one purple tool to remember, but that's that's the that's the kind of father and my father's very engineer minded, and so he would make me if I said something, he would make me think through all of the reasons that I said it, which I think was part of my training that being a reporter made sense. Um, I am not engineer minded but he is, but he's also got that skewed sense of um and you like, you like to, like to cause trouble. Um, my mother, and I, I, I struggled with this for a long time, and it's only just very recently that, um, because I identify so much with my father and the Mansfield men, and I can see the, the body parts that, you know, were genetically handed down, and there's like a mole behind the ear, and the, you know, the, the way the eyes look here. Those are my dads. Um, And so I've really struggled to think of what I got from my mom. And then recently, I realized that my mother was the person who, when she got tired of me guessing all of the Christmas presents that she was giving me, gave me a human skull for Christmas. And I don't mean a ceramic human skull. I mean, she found a human skull... At a dentist's garage sale for 50 cents and bought it for me and wrapped it up and gave it to me for Christmas. Now my mother has a really it doesn't really come out very often, but it's there. Um, and, and, and I also remember her um, talking with the mother of uh, a girl in high school who had some issues after she Got out and said, um, and she said to my mom once, she said, I really wish that somebody like your son had asked my daughter out in high school. And my mother, God bless her, said, your daughter wouldn't have gone out with him in high school and you know it. (laughs) (laughs) And she doesn't remember saying that, but I will never forget (laughs) that she did. Um, And that's the sort of thing I get from my mother. (laughs) Yes. Sonia is your sister, right? Yes, yes, so, and, but it's Sonia, and yeah, she was well, yeah, right. Sonia. Yeah, well, it is not. But I never, yes, she was in my very first section I ever taught, Marriage in the Christian Home at Lipsville. Oh wow! Oh, and something I remember, and see if I see if my memory's right. I, we were talking about family traditions. Yep. And I was asking students to share family tradition, and I still to this day remember the one she shared. Christmas Eve gift. Christmas morning. She talked about how you. I uh, You have other siblings. No, just the two. Of okay, us. but the two of you would always run into your grandmother's bedroom and hop in bed. Right. Get her up. Yep. And say, you know, it's Christmas and all of that. Is that the is that the hoarding grandmother? Uh, yes, that and would it, be the I hoarding. It wasn't Christmas, but it's my memory is it was Christmas. She talked about Christmas morning, running in and. Well, we would do that, but but the 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 big. Christmas tradition um, was Christmas Eve gift. How many, how many of y'all know Christmas Eve gift or do Christmas Eve gift? Okay, all right. Because we, so Christmas Eve, it's kind of, you remember the Green Hornet and Kato? And how Kato would like always come out and fight with the Green Hornet? Okay, this is kind of like that. Um, Christmas Eve gift, you would, um, if you if you said Christmas Eve gift to somebody on Christmas Eve, they would have to give you something. And so we would do just the most outlandish things to try to surprise everybody in the family with Christmas Eve gift. And so we'd sneak up on beds, we'd get up really early in the morning. When we all moved away, we would call them at midnight, um, stuff like that to say Christmas Eve gift. This turns out, this is a Southern um, tradition that dates back to um, pre-Civil War. I think, and, and so I've, I've actually done some research into the Christmas story. But that would one of the ways that we would do it was to just run into everybody's bed and jump on the bed we and say bed. Christmas Eve. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No.
1: We could listen all day. It's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ryan, Absolutely. And Nancy, and thank you for sharing such a tender part of your life. Because I know we all have many struggles, and you don't have walked. We had not walked in everybody's shoes. I did want to say that paulette is not here because she's at the hospital with bailey and <clears throat> i haven't heard of anything this morning i don't know if anybody has but he's uh kidney failure i guess you would say and um no he's, he's shaking his head. we're heading there okay is it Vanderbilt? yes okay our visitor is okay or not mm-hmm. as far as we know as far as we know